friends, welcome to this episode of the Make Well Podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's practicing creativity in their daily life so that they can live a life of purpose and passion. Each week, we'll be interviewing Midwest makers that will unveil the behind the scenes of their journey and lessons along the way. We hope their stories help you live a creative life and inspire you to start today. Hey, makers, welcome to this episode of the Make Well Podcast. This is Ashen, and today we have an amazing guest from Millbank, South Dakota, originally. So true. (laughs) Go Bulldogs. Yeah, he's a designer of engaged communities, researcher of what matters most. He's a podcast host and a Bubble Parade co-founder. Please help me welcome Hugh Weber. So good to be here. So great to be in Bismarck again. (laughs) Yes, I'm so glad that you're here and made the trip. We always love having you here in Bismarck. It's. It, I, I mentioned earlier this morning. It's one of the few places that isn't Millbank and isn't Sioux Falls, where I actually live. That I truly feel at home. Like it just, mm-hmm. my blood pressure lowers. Yes, I, I feel more creative. I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's, it's a great place to be. That's awesome. Well, maybe for those that haven't met you yet, maybe just share a little about who you are today and where what you're doing. Yeah. So today is a is a unique window of time. My work is primarily what I call creative counsel. So I help um, innovative executives. Design leaders work through the ups and downs of their creative professional careers, uh, often diving in with companies and and communities as well. I'm currently working on a crazy project that's taking me to 75 communities of design throughout the U.S., and so I've been on the road a ton this this spring, Um, and I'm the dad to a 10 and a 6-year-old who (laughs) are uh, just about the greatest thing that life can provide. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's kind of dive in your story. Sure. What was maybe your first creative outlet or creative passion, either as a kid or in high school, or you know, when did that start within you? Yeah. So this is this is a little bit of a winding tale uh, because <laughs> I, I was a uh, I was an abnormal path to creativity, and I, I think it was always there. It just looked yeah. a little different. Sure. Um, so as an eight year old, uh, I worked my first political campaign. Oh I was, my gosh. You know, you know, <laughs> People are like, I often say I was a weird kid and they're like, how weird? And I'm like, 10 year old with a business card weird. Like, you know, like this was a strange thing. Uh, so I was active on campaigns from the time I was extremely little through my mid to late 20s. Okay. Uh, and uh, in uh, 2004, uh, I found myself, and this is going to sound imaginary or romantic or Hollywood, but... <laughs> It's absolutely true. Found myself on the White House lawn on the 4th of July with my my dad, who's an electrician from small town South Dakota, and just realized that what I'd been building towards was... Um, was was pretty hollow. It was uh, it was disconnected. Uh, the work I was doing was pretty divisive by nature, and I really wanted to be in a position where I could look back at my career and and feel extremely proud about the things that I had built. So uh, I started a process of of transformation that took a couple of years, <laughs> yeah. but ultimately uh, resulted in starting an organization called Odo, which is how we came to know each other. So it's yeah. weird to say that I think. All throughout um, uh, my life, you know, there's there's a uh, designer um, uh, Charles Eames that talks about design just being uh, solving problems through connection. So if that's mm-hmm. the definition, I was always a designer, yeah, um, uh, solving problems through community through connection. But it really wasn't until my late twenties that I did something that was decisively creative, which was mm-hmm. effectively starting an organization to celebrate the creatives of the Upper Midwest. Yeah, which I'm extremely grateful for. So we'll get to that. <laughs> 
But when you you said you were eight to ten, was that like student council or what type of campaign were you? No, in? so I, le- I legitimately like was fascinated. Um, my, my parents tell really unfortunate stories about being oh, no. a, th- a three and four year old like reading the newspaper about the Reagan election in you know oh, 1980 goodness. 81. And uh, so it was actually my like de- declaration of independence that I I should be a- be able to be active in uh, political work, and it was a, a school board race, mm-hmm. and so I more or less was handed a phone book as an eight year old, and just started calling my way down the phone book, uh, <gasps> telling people to vote for a family friend that was running for office, uh, oh and it was the first of twenty years of more or less picking yeah. up phone books and calling people <laughs> and telling them to vote for elected uh, officials. But it was, it was, I think it was a spark for me. I was really passionate and eight was also where I started one of the great, I'm a collector. I like to collect things. And one of the great collections of my life is a a collection of JFK memorabilia. So Mm -hmm. like everything from newspapers of that era to a golf ball he used and gave to a member of the secret service. But it was at that point reading those books as like an eight year old, this idea of this, um, you know, young, energetic, uh, unlikely leader that inspired people to do extraordinarily big things that got me hooked into political work. Yeah. That's amazing. Especially as an eight year old to be so, you know, focused on one thing. Did that that did that carry you through high school and college, or did it, it kind of? Yeah, change? it really, it really did. I, I mean, I that was that was by definition who I was. If we would hop in the vehicle and drive to to Millbank right now, I guarantee you, someone on Main Street as we walked down it would say, "When are you running for governor? When are you when are you <laughs> running for president?" Because it was so definitional to yeah. who I was. Certainly from uh, ages you know eight to eighteen in the, in in the small town I grew up in. Um, but also really who I was through most of you know my early 20s. That's amazing. So when it came time to take that step after high school of, you know, yeah. do I go to college? Where do I go to college? It was all about the political scene for you. <laughs> it was. And there, there's a crazy story. So <laughs> I was... Uh, <laughs> So I was convinced I, I should go to Harvard University because that's where well, President, President yeah. Kennedy went. Seemed like a good foundation for launching a presidential career. And so I had applied to Harvard. Wise adults convinced me to apply other places as well. <laughs> uh, so I kind of as a as a you know a backup, which is crazy to talk about. The the Harvard was the number one university. The number one liberal arts college was this small school called Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. Okay. So I applied to both of them and ultimately got into both of them. And uh, so I went back to back to visit these colleges coming from, again, you know, small town South Dakota in the northeast corner, almost to, almost to the North Dakota border. And I went to Swarthmore. It was lovely. It's a wooded uh, arboretum, uh, you know, small liberal arts college and, uh, and got to Harvard and it was everything that I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of my time there, there was a kind of yield event in the political science department. And the speaker was, uh, was Michael Dukakis, who had been governor of Massachusetts and the presidential nominee uh, that ran against George Bush. Just so happened that he also had been an alum undergraduate of Swarthmore College and oh. uh, went to law school at Harvard. Yeah. And so I raised my hand, you know, all of 18, a little too much hubris and just said, I've been accepted to Swarthmore and Harvard and don't know where to go. Uh, what should I do? And this yeah. is he's standing in front of a room full of Harvard uh, you know, staff or faculty. Yes. And he said, well, do you want to go to graduate school? And I said, yeah. And he said, someplace like this. And I was like, yeah, I'd love to go to Harvard to because I'd planned my, my vision. 
vision was a PhD at that point. Mm -hmm. And he said, then I think you should go to Swarthmore. And so I did. Wow. Uh, So Michael Michael Dukakis uh, (laughs) taking bold maneuvers uh, uh, is the reason ultimately that I went to Swarthmore College as an undergraduate. So Swarthmore was the opposite of everything small town South Dakota was. It was uh, uh, in the the 60s, they called it the Kremlin on the crumb because they saw it as the like source of like left wing communist thought in the U.S. The crumb was the little (laughs) creek that ran through the back of campus. Um, It was this uh, activist, uh, progressive, um, mind-expanding space that was the perfect place for me to come of age. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it really was four years that were heartbreaking, heartwarming, brain-exploding, wonderful. And I, I think it set me up for a lot of the work that I'm doing today. Maybe not a lot of the work I did in conservative politics, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of the work that I'm doing today. That's perfect. So no regrets. No regrets. No regrets about Harvard. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll say this: like as a as a 41 year old with two kids that are both precocious, you know, bright young kids. I don't know how my parents let me make that decision because <laughs> it's like there was something yeah. like just in terms of brand. It was yep. uh, uh, it was uh, a choice that only a, uh, an 18 year old can make. Um, at 41, it's like, what were they thinking? Why didn't they make me go to Yeah, that's Harvard? a huge decision. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, kudos to them for letting you decide what was best for you at the time and Absolutely. running with it. So. Absolutely. That's great. And you were, I mean, right at the heart of politics in Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because Philly was a window of time that if there was a window that was down, um, uh, my college years, uh, as I like to say, I, I, I majored in acapella and occasionally went to uh, went to class. Um, it was uh, uh, less politically active and more, I, I think, um, uh, philosophically and ideologically expansive. Okay. I mean, it was very political, um, but less campaign style politics. It was uh, it, being exposed to just a whole different. Um, uh, I thought it was so well read, and and I arrived at that place and realized I had seen so little of the world, and mm-hmm. so it was this opportunity to really expand horizons in a way that was. Incredibly generative. It also was like in other ways destructive in that there had to be some walls that came down to make room for the world being so much bigger. And yeah. and uh, and that was not always easy. <laughs> it was yeah. it was a, it was a challenging thing to work through, and then mm-hmm. to constantly be making the the return back to South Dakota and trying to make meaning of a much different world that I had experienced than what I was returning to. Um, but what it, I mean, it set up those next several years, you know, I, I moved, uh, I was back in South Dakota briefly and then was in DC for a number of years and it, uh, it was all over. I mean, 31 States working in from the mayor's office, you know, to a presidential reelect, um, uh, deputy director, uh, on a presidential inauguration, like just kind of crazy, crazy things. Um, and all, all kind of started in deeply invested in by a small town in South Dakota. Wow, that's amazing. And I kind of want to unpack that because I'm curious about it. So when you were in Philadelphia and you're finishing school, was the plan to stay in that area and to kind of pursue like the presidential thing, like you said, or kind of what 
What was your vision at that point? Twenty-one-year-old Hugh was just such a handful. Um, so <laughs> I, I, uh, I had a job uh, set. So I graduated in two thousand. So we're heading mm-hmm. into one of the what ultimately was one of the great elections of all time. Um, I had met kind of through a random alumni event. I was a really active student and was student body president and other things, uh, which is crazy. As one of the few conservative conservatives on campus. I, w- I was uh, I ended up being student body president, but and senior class president. But um, I met this guy named David Gelber, and David was the uh, executive producer of Sixty Minutes at the time. Mm. He his parents had randomly gone to Yankton College in South Dakota. He had, you know, so he had a connection. Yeah. And he kind of just took an interest, uh, albeit briefly, and I've lost touch with him over the last 20 years, but, um, and made a connection uh, with CBS News. And so I had, a, I had a job to be the assistant to the bureau chief uh, for DC during the 2000 election. Okay. Extraordinary job. Like, would have been life changing. It would have probably left me in a, on a path to be on the journalist uh, side of things, especially as I think about that election. Uh, I came home that spring because, you know, you know, like taking three months off in your senior spring is a great idea. It's a terrible <laughs> idea. I barely, ultimately barely graduated because I had like randomly taken this sabbatical sure. that I decided I needed yeah. uh, and came back and worked the state legislature in South Dakota. Okay. And as the session was wrapping up, um, one of the mentors I had develop, uh, developed and, and kind of uh, connected with said, you know, what would it take for you to stay here? Mm. And I said, well, it would take a great job. Like I've got this yeah. thing in D.C. with uh, this extraordinary um, journalist. And, and he said, great, give me give me 30 minutes. And like this is small states, but it's also politics and it's also, yeah. who you know, yep. they went downstairs to the governor's office and he came back up and said, OK, you're a regional rep for economic development. And and here's the salary. And I was like, that's more than I was going to make in D.C. And he's like, OK, so you're staying in South Dakota? Yeah. And I was like, yes. Wow. And so, you know, it ended up being this brief. I had planned to go straight to D.C. and be active and, and uh, ended up being this kind of side path through South Dakota politics that ultimately I think was a better path for me. It allowed mm-hmm. me to be around before my grandfather passed away mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and be around family for a couple of years before heading back out again to the East Coast. Sure. But uh, South Dakota politics was also a place much like North Dakota, much like any kind of smaller rural state where getting involved early is if you've got a little bit of expertise and a willingness to work hard is 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 a pretty easy path uh, to engaging and and so it was an awesome place to to start and I'd known a lot of these folks since I was eight yeah, <laughs> since I was at least them. a teenager <laughs> and uh, and so it was the right path but was back here for a couple of years before heading to DC. What was the largest obstacle to you know being on the political trail in South Dakota versus somewhere like DC? Uh, so the largest obstacle for me, and it's ultimately, I think, why um, I was short for that world, is um, uh, I was always, I was never a good, I was never a good partisan. Uh, and South Dakota politics are extremely conservative. And I, I remember a number of times, like random small things of like, when I first set up a, a Facebook account, I said I was a moderate and like was immediately got a phone call asking me to take it down. Um, and and like, you know, was, was, uh, sometimes not given, uh, positions on 
campaigns because I was perceived to be too moderate uh, mm. or, or even, you know, relative to how conservative things can be you sure. know, liberal. Yep. Uh, and, and my choice of college probably didn't help that. Mm-hmm. So I think the biggest barrier was just that. I think there's also, and this is the difference between 2019 Hugh and 2002 Hugh, uh, is uh, uh, I was extraordinarily ambitious in a way that was um, unhealthy for me and uh, rubbed people the wrong way. And so, I mean, I think, you know, like, as a t- in my early 20s, I, I, I was sent to this, um, uh, but sent to this management school, and I was probably 22, 23 at the time. And um, the Speaker of the House, U.S. Speaker of the House, his campaign manager was running, and he just kind of asked, like, what people's ambitions were. And I said, I, I, <laughs> I stood up and with a straight face and full intention said I wanted to be an ex-governor by the time I was 40 and he was like an ex governor. And I was like, yeah, but like that's when, yeah. that's when real opportunity opens up is once you've been governor. Oh, funny. And it was like, it, it's like, I say it now, like it's someone else because mm-hmm. in a lot of ways it really is. Yeah. Um, but I think that was an obstacle. Like I was just so upfront about how I was so upfront about that ambition and always had mm-hmm. been like, it wasn't, I didn't, and I, I think there's something really powerful in that, but also something really dangerous in that, right? Mm-hmm. Too many political leaders, we'd be better suited if, if political leaders were more upfront about their ambitions, <laughs> you yeah, know, like 100%. it tends to get hidden and it tends to be like, oh, I don't really want to run for president when they all do, or at least think about it. Yeah. Um, uh, and 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 yet it's dangerous when it doesn't have checks and when it doesn't have balance. And I didn't mm-hmm. have a lot of good mentors uh, at that time in life that were willing to say, you know, like there, there's a lot you need to learn. And mm-hmm. and uh, if I missed anything, it was that. It was someone stepping in and saying, you've got you've got potential, kid, but like you've got a lot yeah. to learn. And this is not about waiting in line. And this is not about protocol. This is just about you maturing enough to actually be a leader. Sure. And it's great that you had the confidence, yeah. but at the same time, that needs to be countered with a humility that, that exactly lets you right. propel forward. So absolutely. That, that, that's a great way to phrase it. Like it is, what was lacking was humility. What was lacking was grounding. Mm-hmm. Um, things were stepping stones. They weren't intentional. No. Yeah. Is that ambition kind of what brought you back to DC then? It was. Yeah. I mean, I, I had an opportunity uh, coming out of the 2002 cycle to, to take a position uh, in the, the administration, which was really exciting. The idea of a presidential appointment. I uh, was able to work in the Department of Agriculture doing rural development, which I had actually oh, done nice. in the governor's office. Um, and it was uh, it was aw- it was awesome. I mean, like that that experience, whether it's uh, politically driven or ideologically driven or not, which again, like the way I've started saying it is, I was much more of a mercenary than a missionary. Like I wasn't preaching <laughs> preaching the gospel. I was doing things pr- pragmatically. Sure. Um, but to be part of that uh, for a window of time, a little over a year. Uh, was was a really special um, situation. I get to travel the country uh, to rural communities and and uh, and to help with things like rural housing and rural business was, was super exciting. Yeah, it's sweet that you seem to have that connection back to South Dakota, even when you're doing that work in yeah, DC. Absolutely, absolutely amazing. So, what what happened in that season of life where it brought you to this DC moment with with your dad, where you're just like, this isn't worth it. Like, this isn't where yeah. I wanted to be. You know, I think, I, and and this is the roots of everything I do now, which is that I, I think I just felt really disconnected. I think when 
life becomes transactional. Um, you lose the context of relationship that is so life-giving and is so critical for growth and development, but also sustainability and sustenance. And I'd reached this point where um, I really just was kind of floating alone in that. And then I think, I really think it was completely contextual to the moment of like the idea of sitting in the way house for, for the, um, 4th of July fireworks mm -hmm. is like the kid that grows up wanting to be quarterback for the Minnesota yeah. Vikings yeah, it's magical. In, in the Super Bowl, right? Like, <laughs> I mean, like, it's like everything I had dreamed about as an eight year old, I was literally mm -hmm. experiencing that day. And to sit next to my dad, who's someone who was an electrician, made you know miserable salary most of his career with four kids. Like I still don't know how he he did it. Yeah. Now with two kids, it's like this is not easy. <laughs> um, and yet there were very tangible and still are tangible signs of his work in my hometown. And it was like I'm sitting here thinking like I have worked in 31 states and can't think of many places where people would be excited to see me come back. And, and it was just like all in that kind of context of that kind of mixing pot of a day that it was like there's got to be a better path. And like mm -hmm. I know I have talents. I know I have um, uh, gifts and abilities and a world-class education. Um, and there's got to be a way to use that to do something more generative and more creative. Was it your father, a mentor? Did you have anyone in your life to kind of help you steer you in that season of figuring out what's next? Or was it really you being reflective and thinking through, what do I want to change? Yeah, it's, I'll say that the one kind of missing ingredient in my career has been early mentors. I've been blessed with mentors in the last five years, <laughs> an abundance of them. Um, that just seems crazy. And I repeatedly say like, why didn't I meet you when I was 24 years old? Um, uh, so I, I will say it was a bit of a wilderness phase in that way mm -hmm. um, because there weren't a lot of, of mentors. And I, and I also think that there was, uh, it was, it was uncharted ground. You know, I had reached really quickly, um, if not the pinnacle, at least near the, near the summit of yep. what I was trying to build yeah. and was um, making an extraordinary salary and was 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 um, well connected in that way. Um, and so to completely abandon that, like, I think it was jarring for and, and it was so driven as part of my identity. I think think everyone sure. around me was concerned about what the implications were of it. Um you know, I'd say that I was fortunate kind of in that window a couple of years later as the transition was was moving into its next phases. I'd met my wife and was getting mm -hmm. married, yeah, uh, which helps. which was a definitely a transi <laughs> transitional aid uh, and also distracted for a while from some of the, the chaos of, of that transition because it was really sure. probably a, a four-year window, five-year window that oh, it wow. took to fully – you know, I always say that I had a relapse in 2008 and ran a, ran a campaign uh, uh, because it was, you know, it paid the bills. And, and also it was a, a great guy that I really enjoyed, mm -hmm. um, but came out of in 2009 and it was a fairly full transition. And it, it took that much time. Like it genuinely, both for me to be comfortable with it mm -hmm. and for the marketplace to start to see the value in what I did and could yeah. do outside of political work. Um, 
but but I'll say until this year, so we're talking ten. It took almost ten years. Is the it's the first time that I've started talking about the political side of my career. I had mm-hmm. complete like for me to make the transition, I needed to erase that part of the story. Yeah, uh, and so there were people, uh, you know, through the Oda window that had no idea of the political background, and that was by design. And I think only now in this last year, I felt comfortable bringing it back in because it is there is a linear connection, like what I did best in mm-hmm. politics was not opposition research or you know negative ads or it was it was finding people and plugging them into something they were passionate or purposeful about like period and mm-hmm. that might have been you know something around an issue or a, a candidate or their community but it was just about connecting people to their purpose and that is what I do every day now I mean it's to help people find alignment with their career or their company or their community. And mm-hmm. um, that creative council is no different. It's just that I'm doing it for people that are creative by nature primarily, um, are, um, you know, share some similar values and, uh, and, and generally I enjoy them a lot more. <laughs> yeah. It's really amazing that we can take away so much even from those seasons of life or even, I don't know, for you that 20 years of yeah. being in the political world where you reach this point where it's kind of a dead end for you, but you can still take all the value and the experience and turn it into something that you truly enjoy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and I look at the projects that I've enjoyed most, you know, Oda being near the top, but also mm-hmm. things like I, I worked on this project around uh, the movie Selma, uh, which is okay. the Martin Luther King film. And Paramount Pictures was the client at that point. They were asking this question of, can a movie spark a movement? So they really wanted to know is like, can we build a community campaign around this movie? And mm-hmm. So we, uh, we more or less built a, short term from the time the movie came out through the Oscars campaign um, around the movie Selma. And it was me sitting in my basement office in (laughs) Sioux Falls calling hip hop performers around the country. And, you know, uh, I I, I moderated a a tweet up between kid president and Oprah. Uh, You know, uh, Common got involved. Ava DuVernay, the director, got involved all from South Dakota. But it was as much a campaign as anything else. And so it was taking that same set of skills and just thinking more expansively and more creatively about what those skills actually were. They mm-hmm. weren't just political skills. They were they were community design and community organizing skills. So in that four-year period when you're kind of going through this transition of your career, what were you doing for work at the time? And then did you ever have this moment of like realization, like, this is what I'm going to do next? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, it, it took me 20 years to be disillusioned with politics and uh, about nine months, maybe it was shorter than that, to be disillusioned with advertising. I tried that. <laughs> uh, great firm uh, that I actually enjoyed, but just a couple months in, I was like, wow, this is <laughs> this is less enjoyable <laughs> than, what oh, I was, no. <laughs> than what I was doing. And it was great. I mean, it was a contract, so it was a client. Sure. Um, I, I looked at public affairs, which is okay. more or less lobbying uh, mm-hmm. for a little while, and that wasn't that was even shorter. Uh, so I, I mean, I tried on a lot of suits uh, yep. through that that season. Um, I, I you know, this was a window of time where the idea of Oda emerged. Of, okay. You know, what does it look like to try to find? Um, often solitary individuals in small towns and in small groups and in larger communities and to connect them and celebrate them and, and, Mm -hmm. and to run that strategically like a campaign. I I think that, I think those were the moments. Like I remember that the very first event, which would have been in 2000. 
2010, spring of 2010. And after it, the people who had three months earlier said they they weren't interested in sponsoring or partnering, coming up and saying, mm-hmm. like, we'll write a check today. And I, I think I think it was that moment of like, oh, I've, I've rediscovered kind of the sweet spot of what it is that mm-hmm. I do. Um, there were also, you know, that was a weird window of time where, you know, great cameras that were accessible were like flip cams that like, were <laughs> horrific when yeah. you look at the footage. And so where I also found a, a, a unique connection to story in a way that I hadn't understood um, it as a skill I possessed and, and, and really discovered that it was something that I enjoyed thoroughly. So it was that intersection of some of the community organizing, some of the mm-hmm. storytelling uh, that I think was were, were those moments. So let's talk about the early days of Oda. Yeah. Where did it begin? Wow. It began on a couch on First Avenue in Sioux Falls, <laughs> uh, myself and uh, a young intern at the time, uh, our now writer named Mike Billiter. Uh, and, uh, you know, the entire, the entire grounding idea was I'd spent all that time on the East Coast. And while everyone had a great story about someone they knew from the Dakotas that was really hardworking or was just a real nice guy. Like none of those stories were about innovation or excellence or creativity mm-hmm. or, you know, any, any of the, the things that we elevate and, you know, like uh, idealize elsewhere. And while I don't diminish work ethic or like, <laughs> kindness, yeah, <laughs> like those things are good. I also knew so many creative people and I knew so many artists and so many people mm-hmm. that had big ideas. And so we actually <laughs> pulled it up not too long ago. We actually did a video. We ended up, uh, my Mike with his shaky video hands and the flip cam <laughs> did a video and, and more or less the, the mantra, which we gave up very quickly after that, but was deny the lie, like this lie that Nothing uh, comes from this region. That this recent region is either deprived or desolate yeah. uh, is is just not something that I was willing to accept anymore. And we signed a whole lot of contracts for spaces and uh, speakers before we had any tickets sold or sponsorships. I mean, that year was a little smaller in terms of the obligation. But I always sure. talk about how almost every year was like a bet the house scenario, um, uh, uh, and I mean literally like the house my family lived. <laughs> <laughs> because if we had, for some reason, the tickets hadn't sold, like yeah. there would have been tens of thousands of dollars that would have been, wow. you know, obligated and and with no real direction on how to, you know, recover mm-hmm. that. And so it was mm-hmm. a, it was an exercise of faith, but an exercise of faith in in community to, you know, think think bigger ideals. Um, but it was it was something. I mean, that first year was six speakers. Um, you know. It was, it was, I can't remember if it was 300 people, 350 people that showed up. Okay. Uh, you know, at that time, the, the landscape was a little different. I mean, we didn't have TEDx events. We didn't have Million Cups. We didn't have Creative Mornings. Like, those yeah. things didn't really exist. So if you weren't going away to a big conference and you weren't spending thousands of dollars to be at a conference in Minneapolis or further away, mm-hmm. um, you weren't having those kind of experiences. You were having, like, yep. the one keynote speaker at the annual Chamber of Commerce banquet. Yeah, yeah. And th- um, these happened in South Dakota yeah, the first year. Yeah, that's okay. right. That's right. So the first year, first uh, three years were South Dakota. Um, okay. We did have some organizations that as soon as things were set, really jumped in and wrote checks before they had any rational uh, reason to believe that it was going to be a success. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I have deep gratitude for, you know, some leaders at places like Augustana University that just mm-hmm. stepped up yeah. uh, and, and took care of us. You know, uh, there's this awesome um, 
web development and design shop called Blend in Sioux Falls. That the same, like they and they since started their own event. But I mean, they they stepped in and said, "Yeah, we want to we want to see if this thing could work," which I think is. Um, kind of countercultural in the region. There's a lot of support mm-hmm. for things that have proven themselves. Yep, need and the often, data. Right. <laughs> often that risky, what's perceived to be risky is uh, is a lot harder to raise uh, investment and support for, and, and these organizations did mm-hmm. it from the beginning. That's amazing. I think with some of our other guests, we've been amazed and talked through how when you're vulnerable and you don't know that outcome, yeah. people, at least in our region, do come alongside you because they see that you're taking that step. So I don't know if that's characteristic of the Midwest or if that's humanity in general, but I think that's amazing that those groups believed in you, you know, as a person and saw your vision and partnered with you. Yeah. And I think, I think believed in each other, right? Like there was something about the idea of, yeah, if if we're going to, if we're going to stand up to this idea that nothing's happening here, Mm -hmm. uh, we're only going to be able to do it if we do it together. After these three years, how did you know you wanted to take it outside of South Dakota? Yeah, so I think that had always been the promise. Like that, okay. I mean, you know, we named it Oda intentionally because of the three states. Um, yeah, I think there were always hopes that that would be possible, and and uh, and yet with the resources being more or less a pretty limited credit card in terms of uh, uh, you know cash ability, uh, it was a, a limit. You know, for us, uh, we had started. Uh, a couple years, you know, like a couple years in, to invite organizations and leaders that we thought could help us um, take things to that next step. Okay. Um, and and so, kind of in the mix of all of that, uh, we also were starting to get real attention. Um, and so, people were coming to the event, and I mean, most of those events we were charging two hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars, uh, and people were coming and saying this could easily be a thousand dollar, fifteen hundred dollar event. Wow. And you know, because they were comparing it to things in LA or San Francisco or yeah, Portland. Yep. And the problem was we probably could have done that. Like there, there could have been a moment three years in where we made it an event that was a thousand dollar event. And it would have meant that 250 of the attendees were from somewhere else <laughs> and, yeah. and 50 of the yep. attendees were local. Mm-hmm. I mean, and there was a certain appeal to that and even a exploration of whether that was the right path, but it just didn't feel right. Sure. Um, but we, uh, Oda got covered, uh, in a book, um, uh, by Seth Godin uh, after year three called The Icarus Deception. And he was writing a- in the back about 14, what he called 14 real artists and 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 uh, artists in, the t- in terms of giving a gift uh, of creativity to community. And he featured Oda. And uh, um, after the book came out, uh, a new VP at the Bush Foundation in, in St. Paul, uh, Lars Leafblad, who had also started uh, an extraordinary organization that's still around today called Pollen, uh, was flying on a plane and was reading the book and oh saw, saw this thing was happening in Sioux Falls, South Dakota and landed and called back to staff and just said, does anyone know who this is? And, you know, to our fortune, and it was, um, it was both strategic in that they were invited for a reason, but it was also much less strategic than I wish I could say it was. Sure. We had invited staff to events in the past. And so Bush foundation staff had been at the event. So when he called and said, do you know anything about this? People did. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and so uh, several months later, after a whole lot of back and forth, the Bush Foundation committed to a really 
absolutely life-changing grant uh, over the course of three years that gave us the resources and and the commitment, as importantly, you know, the commitment that we would do mm-hmm. events in both South and North Dakota and ultimately Minnesota. Uh, and that was that was the next three years of life yeah, uh, that think, resulted in a whole lot of things. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's how I initially found Oda was in that season because you guys came to North Dakota. Probably, yeah, I would I would think so. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I was I was uh, nostalgic last night that this is more <laughs> or less the five year anniversary of my first visit to Bismarck, which was over a year before we ultimately did an event here. Um, okay, but uh, came through. We did a tour. Uh, and uh, and you know had had dinner in town and met with a handful of creatives and um, it it is that side of things has been life changing but probably somewhere around those three years is is where mm-hmm. it would have been there was a lot of um, uh, cheerleading and confetti cannons and <laughs> social media celebration yeah, yep, uh, it, was, yep. it was, I mean because I think it was I think it was a f- one of the first major investments in the creative class of the Midwest in general mm-hmm. that wasn't arts-based, that was yeah. really about yep. creative professionals as much as anything. And I think that there's something fundamentally different about that. I think investments in the arts is absolutely critical, but mm-hmm. the arts are still very different than uh, the creative professions as we things like filmmaking, uh, you know, audio storytelling, uh, graphic design, uh, web design. Those things were all still kind of marginal in 2009 and 2010. And uh, and I think the Bush Foundation, uh, Jen Ford Reedy, um, they changed my life, but I think they also changed the the trajectory of how we invest in in this region around those areas, mm-hmm. and that's that's what drew me to Oda because I am a graphic designer by trade, and I grew up literally in my mom's art room. So Amazing. I had this great example of what being artistic looks like, what being an artist looks like, but it never one hundred percent was me. Like yeah. there was just something slightly different, yeah. and so I kind of went down that route of graphic design. And then you're right; it's like, okay, what box should I be put in? And it just didn't fit that arts box. And so Oda was that first first event here in town that it was like, oh, like this is me. This this fits me. I think in expanding that center ground, we gave a lot of space for people who don't see themselves, would never have gone to a creative conference that found a grounding in it. And, mm-hmm. and some of that was the the blessing of the, the Bush kind of um, – uh, circles of influence of saying like let's let's include community because i'd say the first three years were more kind of corporate creativity there was a lot more like marketing a lot less nonprofit or social good Mm -hmm. and so we kind of found a middle ground over time what were some of the biggest wins looking back at your oda season or the biggest victories that i mean i'm sure there's so many (laughs) yeah i mean i the that's a that's a really good question. I I I think some of the biggest wins were, um, you know, there's a firm called Passenger out of uh, out of Sioux Falls, an extraordinary uh, uh, filmmaking studio, and we did 35 micro documentary films with them. I think they were by far the highest visibility, especially outside the region of anything else we did, mm-hmm. and I think that just characterizing South Dakota, North Dakota, and Minnesota creativity 
in a way that was fundamentally different than how it had been perceived gave um, uh, a boost to this region. Like I, yeah. I would, I would go to events that weren't Oda events, and people would be playing the Oda films as interstitials. Oh wow! And we had really been clear that that was okay. So <laughs> it wasn't like I was like, wait a yeah. second. Um, but but it it became the stories we were telling became other people's stories, and I think that that was really um, powerful. So I'd say that was mm-hmm. one. I think the fellows, the trailblazers, builders, and we kept changing the name, but yeah. um, I think the idea of investing in individuals and those kind of micro grants, um, I, I think the, there are foundations in the region and beyond that have adopted that kind of micro investment in a way that wasn't like, it wasn't like we were the ones that invested it. But for me, it came out of really more of the Kiva type micro lending thinking of like, it's not that you know you. It's not that you couldn't have found a thousand dollars on your own. Yeah. It's that that thousand dollars was a spark to do this thing that you you um, that you really wanted to do. And there were so mm-hmm. many projects that that thousand dollars ultimately ended or fifteen hundred. I don't remember what the total was, but mm-hmm. ended up being this thing that um, people ended up using it to raise ten and twenty times more for for the projects that they were doing. And those people became. Uh, Bush fellows and be, you know, may, you know, received hundreds of thousands of dollars for what they were yeah. doing. And I think these were tiny snowballs that were kind of cast over the edge of the mountain that just picked up mm-hmm. steam and speed and became a whole lot of uh, beautiful, extraordinary things. So I'd say that was a big success. It's not going to go on my tombstone. My kids probably will forget it. But the fact that we raised two million bucks, yeah, over Seriously. you know a handful of years and invested almost all of it back in the creatives of this region, like I am insanely proud of that. And not mm-hmm. because it's just a big number, but because it, like it was such a collective exercise, uh, and uh, and and resulted in so many cool things. And I don't know if I can speak for the region as a whole, but I know anyone that's been a part of the Oda experience, um, being a builder, trailblazer, attendee, like we're all so grateful. So thanks for taking that risk and, <laughs> and doing something that nobody's done before. Yeah, it was crazy. It was yeah. crazy. And, and I, I like to uh, humbly see the fruit in things like Makewell, right? Like it, it was so awesome to be a part of the event earlier this year. And uh, and and to be a speaker, but also a participant, and just see the ripples of so much so much work from so many people that now is bearing fruit other places, um, yeah. and and uh, and to recognize some affinity or some family tie to that mm-hmm. that that work is is pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we loved having you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So I guess with. With taking a risk and doing something that nobody's done before, yeah. um, what were some of those obstacles that you had to overcome to, to make Oda exist and to get it off the ground? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would say uh, all along, just deep, deep insecurity. <laughs> I mean, like, just on a human level, like there's something so vulnerable about um, having to ask for help and early on to have to do it with no even like hint of a promise of return. Right. And there are some folks that we were able to then, you know, later spend a lot of money with doing a lot of exciting things. But um, early on, it was it was asked for favors and and uh, and asked for support that that had no guarantee of, of return. You know, and then it, it was just so many friends that saw so many um less than optimal moments where maybe my <laughs> maybe my lesser angels were, yeah. <laughs> were reflected 
I, I think the burden on um, my wife and to a lesser degree because they were so young, but my kids w- was really yeah. there. Um, and, and I, I, you know, I don't think it's it's um, it's talked about enough kind of how much of a burden that is. I mean, it's mm-hmm. not just time and it's not just the threat of your house being lost because your husband <laughs> has a crazy idea. I think it's also just the emotional stress of watching someone um, take a risk and watching them kind of agonize through it. And, yeah. you know, the stress of whether someone will show up and then the if the, if they're anything like me, the like self-analysis after it's even after it's been successful the self-analysis of like how it could have been better oh of course and then the immediate almost immediate desire to do it all over again like that that stress is real for partners and Mm. husbands and wives and uh and i think that 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 side of things was a a barrier but was also an incredible gift to have that kind of support through the process i think Mm -hmm. amy my wife is the kind of unappreciated underappreciated and it's because she never wants to be on camera i mean like we we there was a documentary made about oda and (laughs) her willingness was to more or less be in the scene where she cut my hair and she didn't want to be interviewed and she didn't want to be like and it's like this is your moment this is your moment to claim all the credit like, yeah, yeah. like, because you're the reason this all happened, and she was like, "Yeah, no." <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think that 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 happens often. That I think there there's a partner, whether they're a literal partner and literally in the work, which well, you know, wasn't necessarily all the, always the case with Amy, but or if they're more of a, a personal partner that's supporting the work behind the scenes that often gets kind of left out of the, the history of, yeah. of those events. And I think that, I think that was hard because I think that I could say something great at the end of an event and it didn't make up for the amount of uh, work and, uh, and anxiety and stress that was created as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, towards the end of Oda, how did you know that it was time for a new season? I mean, kind of like your political yeah, dreams, you invested question. so much time and obviously you said, so many big wins and you're passionate about it now like you're living in your element yeah how did you know it was time to do that exit that is that is a great question because i I think there were a lot of folks that thought i had a really clear next step i think Mm -hmm. there was this sense of that that i was leaving that and closing that to go somewhere uh that wasn't the case i mean i think there was a certain sense that i didn't want to be a fundraiser for a living and i i also think that you know in taking the risk to start oda it, there was a risk taken to Endota. You know, mm-hmm. we think of nonprofits, especially in this region, as something that should just like stick around and be around forever. Yeah. Uh, and and I think that this idea that when we invest in something, it should be sustainable forever. And 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 part of me thinks that that uh, is counter to the culture that we actually need to build of experimentation and and trial and seasons and yeah. failures and yeah. all of those things. And so part of it was that. I, I think the other part of it was I. Th- I I had this real sense <clears throat> that the the people we had had invested in, yourself included, uh, time and energy and whatever else, um, that that Oda was. I just realized I have a story to tell, but the Oda, <laughs> Oda was um, sucking the oxygen out of some of the space and was making it hard for other things to emerge. Mm-hmm. And so, the story I was going to tell is I, I remember one of the last events. We had a potential sponsor, and we sat down, and um, 
Hesiod and make this nondescript. And <laughs> we pitched, and they were like, this is great. Uh, you know, like, we'll probably do this. And it was a significant amount of money. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, well, is there anything else I can tell you? And they said, no, we just need to decide between this and feeding America. And, and it was just like, that moment of recognizing that I was raising money <laughs> that could yeah. go to feeding children. <laughs> and it was like, I really love what we're doing. And, uh-huh. and at this scale, it has real significance and, and uh, influence and everything else. Um, but it felt like that there was a local solution that, that could raise funds to do things. And mm-hmm. things have emerged. Many things have emerged in Sioux Falls. Many things have emerged elsewhere. Um, that could do just as much good and that if Oda was to continue doing what it was doing, it would need to continue to ask for money that could go to other causes that I, I frankly think are more critical yeah. <laughs> to the people of the region. Yeah. So it wasn't an easy choice, mm-hmm. but but I, I, I think it was – I remain absolutely convinced it was the right choice. Um, and it's opened up so much more space for me as well. I mean, I think, I think that's the fear, right? Is that you've done this thing. <laughs> it's been <laughs> successful. And I realized how hard it, it had taken five or six years the last time I, <laughs> I left right, something. to build it up. Um, that, uh, that it could take a long time. And, and yet it felt like the right time to do it. So what did that next step look for you? I mean, you're in this world of creativity and connection. So where did that lead you next? Yeah, so I, it, you know, there were a couple parallel paths that emerged, and I think that, in the same way that it, there was some stops and starts, and uh, you know, like, and some of the some of those good and some of those challenging, you know, I really had this sense, and I and I say this both with a smile on my face and an absolute uh, fondness for everyone involved, and they might not feel the same way, but I absolutely <laughs> do. But I stepped into a relationship with public broadcasting, with South Dakota Public um, Broadcasting and Radio, um, an incredible team. And, you know, I, I think I thought I knew what it was to be that kind of a constant uh, production focused, uh, you know, interviewer and journalist. I mean, we did mm-hmm. 20 uh, fully edited episodes. I literally day one didn't own a mic and didn't know how to use an audio editing tool. <laughs> And by the end, I had done all the editing for all the episodes oh, and wow. done all the recording and production myself. But we did 20 episodes. We did 40-some weeks of live radio uh, sharing which was uh, of stories of the region, which was exciting. Mm-hmm. But I think at the end, like, I just I, – I, I wasn't the right fit for the the process that was radio. I, 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 th- I really thought I, w- I would be and I thought yeah. I wanted to yeah. be. and. But I think it was a good stage to say, like, I want to be involved in storytelling. I want to be involved in uh, community design. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's I'm not a, I'm not going to be a content producer and a, and a journalist in that same way. And so it, it allowed though a year to really find that footing and to step back in in some ways back into what I had been doing, um, but on a on a much kind of broader scale. And so. The last year, year and a half has been insane. You know, I, I stepped onto a onto a board, a national board for AIGA, which is the National Professional Association for Design. It's twenty one thousand members in seven, <laughs> soon to be seventy five cities, seventy four oh, cities currently. 
and uh, have been you know, not only working on that board, but also traveling uh, across the country, kind of rapid fire, uh, visiting chapters throughout the U.S. and really gathering a, a much deeper spirit and sense of creativity in the United States. Uh, as we talked when we started out, my work now I call Creative Council, which what I found is that creatives, when they are really truly talented are both promoted out of their craft and out of their teams mm -hmm. and sometimes that means they leave and go freelance and they're working independent or that means that they are become uh, art directors or creative directors but genuinely leaves them in many cases in this isolated state that I had found them to be when I started Oda and so I get to be the connective fiber in a lot of ways bringing people into community or helping them to design the communities that they need for to be supported personally, emotionally, spiritually, but also <laughs> uh, also cre creatively, you know, in terms of output and quality. And, um, you know, to be able to call with sincerity, not with hyperbole, but to call um, some of the great design minds in the, in the world right now friends, like, is beyond anything I could have ever imagined. And to... You know, enjoy that kind of role of being the the non designer, really mm -hmm. the the community designer for you know designers uh, is yeah. is something that I never would have imagined, but is so much tied to the lineage of Oda and to um, the political work and to being an eight year old that just wanted to like do exciting things and mm -hmm. meet exciting people and be you know. Uh, creatively and personally like stimulated by ideas and that hasn't changed that 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 process hasn't changed it's just evolved in a in a different way yeah that's amazing what's the next year of your world look like oh my goodness <laughs> more more traveling to the different cities or I'm going to need to come back sometime <laughs> in the next couple months and, okay. and share a lot with you. But I'll, cool. I'll, I'll speak cryptically so that sure. it'll seem obvious like there was a, <laughs> some sort of inside track here. Um, I think what, what my work is going to look like is going to look like Oda on an international level. I think it's going to look like uh, spotlighting and telling the stories of creatives uh, throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. It's going to look like events with some of the leading design, um, storytelling, and and, uh, and corporate creative minds. I think it's going to look like uh, a bit of the investing in fellows, um, but probably in a, in a unique way of helping elevate um, extraordinary creatives that need public speaking platforms and need um, – you know, revenue streams around courses and around ideas that are just that next scale of getting the money in their pockets. Um, and I think it's going to be uh, also built on uh, a real sense of giving those same tools to communities and designers that haven't had them. So um, a big part of my work right now and something I'm extremely passionate about is a program called the Creative School in Southeast D.C. Uh, it's a program uh, focused on story-centered design and teaching fifth-grade kings, young men, uh, primarily young African-American men, um, how to use the tools of design to design their own well-being and their community's well-being. Uh, and I think that uh, that's that's a big part of what's next for me. And I think the, the last piece I would say <laughs> is that uh, I think we're going to see, um, without uh, all of Oda's trappings and with any need for me to sell tickets uh, I think we're gonna see a lot of the leading design voices in the in the country visiting some cities like Sioux Falls and Bismarck uh, in the in the coming year 
because they're they're friends and because they 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 want to see these places and they want to be part of the same stories and they want to you know have great coffee and a delicious you know prosciutto you know, <laughs> <laughs> prosciutto uh, breakfast dish like I had this morning uh, and. Uh, and so I think they'll be coming to places like this for weekends and retreats and residencies. And um, that's super exciting. That sounds amazing. And I cannot wait. And I think yeah. I think the Midwest is ready. <laughs> yeah, I do, too. I, and I think they're ready in a way that isn't about being uh, shocked and awed by those folks. Yeah. But being fully willing to sit and just have a conversation and, and be in, you know some version of communion with those folks. And, and uh, I think I think they're ready in terms of talent development, and I think they're ready in terms of confidence. And I think that while hopefully not a lot of them are saying they're going to be an ex-governor by the time they're 40, <laughs> I do think there are people that are saying, I'm a, I'm a filmmaker capable of world-class work, and I, I choose to live in Bismarck, or I'm a mm -hmm. graphic designer doing extraordinary work, and I'm, I'm living in Sioux Falls. And um, yeah, I think they're ready as well. Um, I mean, thinking back to that eight-year-old who was making those calls, is there something that you wish you would have, you could have told yourself looking back at your your journey huh. where you've gotten? Wow, you are going to try to make me cry before this. Is done. <laughs> oh no, don't now, cry. <laughs> so, so, so I'll say this, and and this is not to say that that I haven't or I didn't, but. I just wish I'd enjoyed it more. Mm. Like, it, and I mean that even, even in the last 10 years, like I, I've enjoyed the last 10 years a whole lot more than the first 30, but I wish I'd enjoyed it more. Like, you know, I, I, gosh, I have gotten to do truly crazy things like, like things that I never could have eight year old Hugh had some pretty crazy ambitions, mm -hmm. but, uh, he never could have imagined this stuff. I mean, I, I still have a hard time with it. Um, and I think that where I find those moments now are through uh, conversations like this. I mean, I think that it, it gives a chance to reflect. I, I just, I'm, I'm at a stage that maybe is what you do when you get older, but I'm at a stage where I'm just appreciating those things and, and yeah. reveling them more. Hugh, what's the secret sauce to your success? I have found that the best creative uh, partner I have, and this has been true since she's been three years old, she's 10 now, is my 10-year-old daughter, Emerson. Um, uh, I have also found that the best uh, measure of whether something's interesting is my six-year-old son, Finn, uh, <laughs> because he <laughs> has a very, very low threshold. Emerson will listen and nod politely at anything I talk about. Finn needs the point very quickly, or he is ready to move on. Yeah. Um, I think think that the secret to my success these last 10 years is my my wife and children. I mean, I think that not in some sort of cliche way because they have borne the the negative side of all this work and all this travel as well. Um, but they if in plugging into them fully and respecting their perspectives in a genuine deep sort of way, like I joke a lot that Emerson's my creative director, but she is she is sharp and and she is <laughs> Uh, she is insightful in, in terms of elegant solutions and she is expansive in her imagination. And uh, I think that that is a key part of what has driven not only a desire for legacy, but also a commitment to, to excellence in, in the creative work. I talk about her 
not in some sort of proud dad way, but in a designers, you need to set higher standards way. Uh, mm-hmm. Almost every city I visit. <laughs> and yeah. um, and uh, I think that's that's a critical part. All right. Here, our final question is always the same. It's what is one thing you wish you were really good at but aren't? And how do you work around it? I genuinely wish that I was a patient person. Like I wish that I had the kind of patience that I see in my father and that I've seen in a lot of uh, leaders that I've worked with. Um, I think it is perhaps one of the most powerful um, uh, leadership tactics and, and abilities and talents, just this ability to, to be patient, right? So if I have a great idea, I need it to get get out as quickly as possible. If I have something I'm frustrated with, I need to address it as, as, as quickly as possible. If mm-hmm. I have somewhere I would rather be than the place <laughs> that I'm in, it is hard for me to hide that. Sure. And people that are patient have so many more opportunities than 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 people because they see more opportunities than people who aren't um my workaround for that in in a direct way is just remain absolutely insanely curious like if i can if i can stay curious if i can ask continue Mm -hmm. to ask myself questions not in an indecisive or um uh uh, not in an indecisive way but in a genuinely curious way of like you know if i'm if i'm bored i'm asking myself in my head over and over like what are they hoping to get from this what what are the you know what is their motivation what what happened to them this morning that they're acting this way like i'm just trying to like stay curious ask questions like and Mm -hmm. and most of those inside my own head (laughs) you know my own demons um but but i do i do think that is one of the greater liabilities i have is that i am impatient curiosity kind of is the silver bullet that inoculates a lot of shortcomings Mm -hmm. Uh, and in this case it's it's how i you how i work around my own sense of just absolute (laughs) insatiable impatience (laughs) that's really encouraging i think even myself i struggle with this idea of always having to be productive and sometimes that unfortunately hurts the people in my life and the relationships that we build so i think that's that's a really good piece of advice for all of us to remember is just to stay curious and be patient because you don't want to miss out whether it's people or places or that's right projects that is is exactly right you know uh, that yes Period. End of story. <laughs> yes, That's period. right. You win. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for coming to Bismarck, for sharing your story and kind of opening up about both your political world, but what you're doing yeah. next. Yes. Thank you. It's it's a joy to, to be here with you and to be here in Bismarck and invite me back in six months so I can tell you all my secrets. Okay. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Makewell Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or subscribe wherever podcasts are found. If you'd like to learn more about the Makewell community or get connected, you can visit wearemakewell.com or at wearemakewell on Instagram. All right, we'll see you next time, friends.